You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 22nd day of October 2012. Welcome to episode 248 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Art of Debunking. Now, listeners to episode 236 of Corbett Report Radio will be able to cast their minds back to my conversation with Freeman of Freeman TV, where we were discussing a wide range of subjects, but also the name of Uri Geller was raised, that uh, self-proclaimed psychic from the 1970s and 80s, he's still around today, but was well known in the 70s and 80s for his supposed ability to do spoon bending and mind reading, etc. And it was in the context of that conversation that we received an important phone call from Owen in Florida. Hello. When I heard that, um, your, your guest mentioned Yuri Geller, I want to mention a few things. But first, I, I just want to, to, to say that the occult is a fascinating subject and that I am not a big fan of, of, of some of the debunkers out there. You have some very legitimate uh, studies out there that, you know, for example, remote viewing and, and so on, that are, are, are very valid. But when it comes to someone like Yuri Keller, I think one of the debunkers, otherwise known as James Randi, did a pretty fantastic job, in my opinion, exposing the guy as, as no fantastic psychic, but a very good performance artist. So, you know, I, I, I think the field of the occult is full of a lot of, of info landmines, and it's very easy to let it get out of hand or... Right, to, get, to get waylaid by misinformation. Freeman, what's your take on that? Well, you know, another one of those debunkers where the, um, was uh, Penn and Teller, and they had a, a show called BS. Well, I think they spelt that all the way out. Um, let me just say that, that Penn is the largest holder of satanic works in the world. He has them in a, you know, a hermetically sealed vault in his basement, and he is a huge Satanist. And they, he is the one that they would bring forward to, to debunk this kind of topic. And he was the one who had a uh, special on how Norman Borlaug was the greatest human who ever invented, who was the guy who introduced the GM wheat, which is causing everyone all the problems right now in Mexico. So lots and lots to talk about there. We're coming up against another break. Owen, you can hold on if you'd like. And anyone else? one 800 now, as I say, I think that was an important phone call. So let's unpack some of the, what was contained therein, because I think that goes right to the heart of what today's episode is really about. So first off, let's note at the end of that clip that you heard there, uh, Freeman and I discussed some of the self-proclaimed skeptics who are part of the skeptical community, quote unquote, that we've talked about here on this podcast in the past, including perhaps most notably in episode 221 of this podcast, Reclaiming Skepticism. 
But uh, we talk, for example, a little bit about Penn and Teller. And for those who are interested in what I was saying there about Norman Borlaug and Penn and Teller's proclamation that Norman Borlaug was the greatest human being who ever existed, you can go back to episode 241 of this podcast, The Truth About the Gene Revolution, where we talked about Borlaug and his contribution to the Green Revolution, his Rockefeller funding, and the Penn and Teller veneration of people like him. But uh, let's... Let's move on. Let's look at what Owen was actually saying there, because I think it is important. He raised an important point that when it comes to this type of very far out there kind of stuff, there are there are a lot of charlatans, frauds and tomfoolery that goes on in the name of perpetuating ideas that should not be perpetuated. And I think that's demonstrably the case of what happened in the case of Uri Geller, for example, who was... Well, he was uh, proclaiming himself to be a skeptic at that time in the 70s and 80s when he was getting a lot of television coverage, etc., for the Geller effect and his ability to bend objects with his mind and read people's minds, etc., etc. And there are a lot of debunkings of Uri Geller out there that uh, are easily accessible through the internet, so I'll invite you to go and take a look. There's lots and lots of different ones out there, but a lot of them feature James Randi, who was uh, an ex-magician, James the Amazing Randi, and as a magician, he was a performer. He knew the sleights of hands and tricks that the magicians use to try to convince the audience that something is happening when something entirely different is happening. So he was particularly well-situated to show the charlatan and expose the fakery of someone like Uri Geller. And that was uh, someone that I think Randy made a name for himself on exposing and debunking for over the course of decades. So if you go and look for exposés of Uri Geller, you will probably encounter James Randy soon enough. So let's take a look at a representative example of one of Randy's debunkings of Geller. And uh, again, there are lots and lots of different ones online. This is just one that I've selected because it's uh, particularly good at getting straight to the point. And this is a uh, debunking of a clip of Uri Geller supposedly bending keys with his mind simply by rubbing the key and saying, bend, bend to it. And supposedly the key bends. And uh, Randy does a great job of exposing the charlatanry and, and sleight of hand that actually is at play here. So let's take a look at this clip and how James Randy, Randy debunks Uri Geller. Now, I want you to watch this segment with uh, equal interest. This is from Rye, which is the uh, radio diffusion something or other uh, in uh, Italy. Uh, there's Rye 1, 2, and 3. I think this is Rye 3 in Italy. It's their big uh, network there. And it was done in a studio the size of what well, they call it Noah's Ark, the studio. And uh, it's a huge, huge studio, like a, like a football stadium. And all cameras are concealed, and there are no monitors. Now, in an ordinary television studio, you will see several cameras. One will have a tally light, a red light on it. You know that's the one that's active, and you can see monitors spread around, so you can see what is being recorded at that moment. Now, in this studio, you never see a monitor. You never see the cameras. They're in holes in the wall with very big, fat, long lenses with uh, stable cam things on them, gyroscopes, and to keep them steady. You never know where the camera is coming from, and you don't see a monitor. Geller was really afraid of that kind of system, as I would be under those circumstances. I want to see what's happening. I want to know what's on that screen at that moment. He couldn't see. You're going to see him bend a key, and the moment of truth will be there for you to see. See if you can catch him doing it. These are not my keys. Queste non sono le mie chiavi. You hold them so. Hold the key. Um, allora, 
Lui dice non sono le mie chiavi. Tutte, tenete le chiavi in questo modo. Tenetele in questo modo. Tutte. Posso alzarmi? Con la vostra mente dite piegatevi. Piegatevi nella mente. Sta iniziando. Sta iniziando a piegarsi, a incurvarsi verso l'alto. Ben. Piegati. Ben. Piegati. Ben. Piegati. Stop. Look. Adesso guardate. And this is not my key. Questa non è una Somebody mia chiave. Mi sembra la chiave, Now, la chiave del cameraman. At home. A casa. Check your keys. Controllate le vostre chiavi. Maybe your key Forse bank. anche la vostra chiave si è piegata. Check your key. Maybe Forse anche qui here. nel pubblico la chiave di qualcuno si è piegata. Controllatele una per una. I'm just even a e se qualcuno si è piegata anche poco, little, anche poco. Ditelo. Questa non erano mie queste chiavi. Ed è impossibile piegarle fisicamente. Now did... oh. Look. Look. Un'altra chiave. E ripeto, con la forza, con la forza fisica non si riesce a piegarle. Did you catch it? All right, roll back just a tiny bit if you can, Jim. You will see him do it twice, right on camera, right in front of you. Bingo. Bingo. That's it. It's that simple. He does it right smack in front of you saying, you can't bend these keys, as he bends it. It's that simple, folks. It's not more complicated than that. That's what he gets away with. Look. Oh, my God. Yeah, play it, play it, go ahead. Now, look very carefully, hold it. Look very carefully here. Look at the angle of the key. It's already bent in his hand, okay? Look at the angle. Try to fix that in your mind, that actual angle of the key. And watch what he does. All he does is hinge it up like that. It's the same degree of bend that you'll see 30 seconds from now. Go ahead. You can see the bend in it. All he's doing is turning the yellow handle up more and more. At levels out and the rest of the key points at the sky. And this idiot is rubbing himself silly here. That's how simple it is. It's never any more complicated than that. Well, as I say, that is just one example of the many, many, many that are available online of Uri Geller being exposed and debunked, and uh, a lot of them featuring James Randi, who was on top of things there right from the very beginning in the 1970s, calling Uri Geller out for the fraud that he was, and rightly so, again, for any would-be defenders of Uri Geller out there in the crowd, although I don't imagine there would be many. Uh, Uri himself has dropped the, the self-proclaimed psychic label and now openly 
calls himself an entertainer. The Geller effect is not, was not, and never will be a supernatural phenomenon, and it was a, a fraud that was perpetrated through sleight-of-hand techniques. So once again, that has been thoroughly exposed and debunked, and in grand style by people like James Randi, who obviously he knows what he's talking about. An ex-magician, he knows the sleights of hands that are used to direct people's attention away from what is really happening. So hats off to him for being in that arena and calling it out for what it was for decades now and being ahead of the curve. But when it comes to key benders and spoon benders and mind readers and crystal healers, etc., I don't know about you, but certainly myself, I am not particularly concerned about that form of charlatanry. Certainly it doesn't hurt that there are people out there exposing it. All the power to them if they can expose the frauds for frauds. And it's certainly best if they can actually help people save money or whatever else they choose to invest in these types of frauds. It's uh, certainly to the good that if uh, more knowledge can come out about how these frauds are perpetuated so that people will not fall prey to them so easily again. But having said that, again, I'm not particularly concerned about the wave of keybenders that uh, that are out there waiting behind every corner to take my money. I'm a little bit more concerned about the types of issues that we talk about here on a weekly basis, on a daily basis at the Corbett Report. The geopolitical issues, the, the issues of the financial sector, false flag terrorism, the encroaching police state. These are issues that I think will affect not only myself, my family, and the people that I love and care about, but people all around the world and the future of the human civilization itself and are matters that are not to be taken lightly or disparaged or poo-pooed in a similar manner. I think that we, again, have to examine claims based on their merits and either accept them or refute them based on the, the merits or demerits of those arguments. But strangely enough, although James Randi himself has become the focal point of the modern wave of the skeptical movement that we've talked about here on the podcast before, and he's venerated as a great thinker and someone that we can all look up to for his ability to debunk flimflam of various sorts, he is curiously unskeptical when it comes to official government pronouncements on major geopolitical issues, including, of course, September 11th. So, Mr. Randy, what are your thoughts about all the conspiracies that are still alive 10 years after 9-11? Well, I'll tell you a bit of a secret, but uh, the son of a very, very famous astronomer, who I will not name, a good friend of mine, both the astronomer and his son, has now become a conspiracy nut. He believes that everything is a conspiracy. The, uh, the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, uh, obviously communists or masons are something, but it can't be an accident. There are no accidents. If a meteor would fall on New York City, he would say, aha, I wonder how they did that, but it's obviously a conspiracy. Uh, there are so many people who have this illusion that there must be a human agency behind everything that happens. I find that hard to believe. But nonetheless, I have to face them. And uh, one of the chapters in my book, down to the end of this next book, which will be called A Magician in the Laboratory, down to the end of that book will be a special chapter on the conspiracy people especially with the World Trade Center. Of course, it is a ridiculous concept that they can't believe that two huge aircraft flying into the World Trade Center full of fuel 
and exploding could bring down the World Trade Center. Of course it can happen. It's been shown clearly that it can happen. And they're trying to work out all kinds of possibilities of how George Bush managed to bring down the World Trade Center. As if he went around with a hacksaw or something at the base of it, making sure no one was looking, of course. And I wouldn't be surprised if they'd come up with something like that. Oh, yes, and it's been known that he used to travel out to New York City. and They're so crazy, these people. But that's a comfort to them. They've got nothing else going for them. And uh, this gets excitement, and it gets them interviews on television, and books are written about it, and their name may be mentioned. Oh, that's all they need. They want fame, even though they're being really stupid and really silly. Well, I will refrain from taking the easy, cheap shots at Randy that I could based on the content of that clip because of the mitigating circumstances of that clip. Once again, it's just a clip from a larger conversation. It seems to be a casual conversation. These do not seem to be prepared remarks. It didn't seem that Randy was prepared for the conversation to take that particular turn at that particular time. So I think it's safe to say this is not exactly the strongest argument that someone like Randy would put forward for why we shouldn't believe the conspiracy theories about September 11th. But then again, even the question itself was so hopelessly broad, hopelessly vague, and hopelessly leading that we could not expect much of an answer of any substance for, to stem from that question. It was obviously going to be an answer about why we should, with a blanket tar brush, to call all conspiracy theorists lunatics and dismiss all of those theories. So uh, again, it, it shows uh, there are a lot of things that we can pick up from that clip, but, uh, but one that I'd like to focus on is not the straw man argument that George W. Bush was at the base of the World Trade Center with a hacksaw bringing down the Twin Towers, because again, it is a straw man argument, but I don't believe that Randy was seriously proposing that as something that uh, the 9-11 conspiracy theory community actually proposes. It was clearly meant as a humorous kind of way of summing up the ludicrous nature of their arguments. But at the very least, that type of analogy shows that, that well, shows the absolute total disregard with which the so-called self-proclaimed skeptical community holds the intellectual capacity of people like myself and others around the world who question the events of 9-11 and the official conspiracy theory put forward by the 9-11 Commission. And that is a curious blind spot, I would say, for the skeptical community as a whole. And I do posit that this is a blind spot of the skeptical community of, as a whole as it's developed around people like Randy and Michael Shermer and Penn and & Teller and, and others that we've talked about on this podcast before. Again, I'll ask you to turn back to Reclaiming Skepticism, where I talked about this in more detail. But it shows a curious blind spot where they can be quite analytical and, and quite good at exposing specific pieces of charlatan when it comes to very uh, supernatural phenomenon like that claimed by Uri Geller, etc. But when it comes to things of geopolitical consequence and uh, the various issues that, that really do affect the lives of ultimately billions of people around the world each and every day, there's an odd lack of skepticality on the part of these people. So again, I don't want to put words in their mouths or to dismiss the skeptical movement, whatever you want to call it, altogether. I think there are valuable things to come from it. So I will 
simply invite you to go to the James Randi Educational Foundation at uh, randy.org and explore the various parts of that to that uh, website for yourself, including, of course, the forum at forums.randy.org, where they have a vast conspiracy theory section where they talk about all sorts of different conspiracy theories and people on that board generally deride them and sometimes provide valuable debunkings of some of the uh, more outlandish claims. And uh, again, I won't prejudice you one way or another. I just ask you to go there and take a look at those forums. And uh, and I myself do I look at them from time to time, and I think there are some excellent examples of debunkings where they take apart specific claims with specific documentation and evidence to show that those claims are not what they appear to be. I love that type of debunking, and all I really truly care about at the base is to get to the facts. So if the facts go against what I've previously believed, I'm happy to throw away those old beliefs if we can find the evidence to, to do so. And for evidence of that, I invite people who haven't done so to take a listen to my Patriot Mythology episodes of this podcast, where we talked about some of those things propounded in the conspiracy theory community that I I don't I either don't or, or never or no longer hold to be true because of specific pieces of evidence and reasoning that have convinced me otherwise. And that's a process that continues to happen. And that's why I think debunkers and skeptics and the skeptical community is valuable, even if they don't ultimately end up debunking certain claims. At the very least, it's interesting to see the, the counter arguments that they can make. And it only helps to strengthen our own arguments if we do have evidence and documentation and can actually refute these debunkings. So that's one of the valuable things about things like uh, forums.randy.com. Org. So again, I'll go you, ask you to take a look. But again, I think you won't take a very long time before you start to encounter the very type of blind spot that I was referring to earlier. And uh, I think it's, for my money, quite obvious quite early uh, in the conspiracy theory section. But I'll, I'll let you come to that decision for yourself. But uh, one uh, post that I'll, I'll get you to look at in particular is uh, a thread under the headline, 9-11 Commission said little to no significance into 9-11 financing? Question mark where one of the posters raises the question that we've raised on this podcast uh, numerous times, which is the question of the financing of 9-11 and the fact that the 9-11 Commission itself admits that they could not find the, the actual source of that funding and that the question is of little practical significance, a claim so ridiculous as to be almost self-parodying. And, uh, and certainly some of the members on this board seem to be a little bit uncomfortable with that quote. So unlike some of the epic threads that go on for dozens of pages, this one is a single page. It's only uh, 11 posts long, or sorry, eight posts long, and they talk, they mull over and talk about what the 9-11 Commission ultimately found about the sources of funding of 9-11. And I will point you in particular to the post made by Homeland Insurgency, who points out specifically what the 9-11 Commission was claiming from their own quotes from the one of the, uh, the posters on this uh, forum who posted some of the quotes from Chapter 5 of the 9-11 Commission report, and Homeland Insurgency sums it up very well by saying the 9-11 Commission stated that the the origin of the funds remain unknown, and bin Laden did not fund al-Qaeda through a personal fortune in a network of businesses in Sudan, and to date the U.S. government has not been able to determine the origin of the money used for the 9-11 attacks, and ultimately the question is of little practical significance. And then he exhorts one of the other posters, clearly a purveyor of the official 9-11 conspiracy theory, to go make a YouTube video and about that and let everyone know about it and let everyone comment on it, I should say. Uh, I, I think that's a humorous little uh, quote because, again, it goes to show the fact that this debate will only go so far. But once there are actually valid points raised, the debunkers suddenly don't seem that interested in debunking the official theory. 
And another added piece of irony to that is, of course, that Homeland Insurgency, the person who made that post taunting the others in this skeptical forum to be a little bit skeptical of the 9-11 Commission, has been banned from posting on the forum any longer. I wonder why. Well, again, let's let's not get make too overly broad a uh, proposition here. I'm not saying that this or that source is trustworthy or untrustworthy. Again, I think each individual claim has to be taken on its merits or demerits and based on the facts and evidence that are presented and the way that they are reasoned through or not reasoned through. And that's the, the basis upon which we should be taking into uh, consideration or leaving to the wayside those theories that, uh, that co- we come across. And in that regard, when it comes to this type of work of finding the facts, finding the evidence, and debunking the claims of people who are trying to pass off charlatanry of whatever kind on us, well, it is like any other art, I think. It can be done well, it can be done very poorly. There's there's a range of ways in which it can be done. So today I'd like to focus on some of the ways that this debunking has been done, I think, particularly effectively in the past. And let's uh, let's shift the conversation over from keybenders and spoonbenders and into things that really matter. Like, for example, the JFK assassination and the theory that the, uh, the President of the United States was killed by lone nut assassin Lee Harvey Oswald with his three bullets causing all of that damage to Kennedy and Connolly, including, of course, the infamous infamous magic bullet by the recently deceased Arlen Specter, that theory that uh, apparently deserves no skepticality. Well, let's take a look at a specific example of a debunking of one of the, uh, the documentaries that have been pushed on the public in the last several years to try to convince them that those claims that Lee Harvey Oswald was anything but a lone assassin is are, are ridiculous. And uh, one of those documentaries was put out by, who else? The Discovery Channel, who had a very detailed and scientific debunking of that. They, they did this elaborate uh, shot where they, they actually had the person at the exact angle and height, etc., that Oswald would have been trying to shoot the president, blah, blah, blah. Could he duplicate the shot going through uh, Connolly into Kennedy, etc., etc., or going through Kennedy into Connolly, I should say, etc., etc. All of that was duplicated in this shot, and and what we are meant to believe and conclude from what they they tell us in the narrative of this documentary is that, ergo, Lee Harvey Oswald could have made the shot, and therefore he did, which is of course in and of itself a flawed conclusion. But even the way they try to bring us to that conclusion is flawed, and it is based on trickery that is excellently debunked in this video. It goes under. The 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 title, The Discovery Channel Scam. It's available on YouTube. I suggest you go and take a look at the original. But we're we're going to listen to a clip of this where uh, the debunker goes into the debunking of this Discovery Channel hit piece. And I would uh, once again invite all the people listening to the audio mp3 of this podcast, please go and look at the video of this because again, this is a visual piece of trickery by the Discovery Channel that is excellently debunked here. So let's take a listen to this debunking. At 3,000 frames per second, our high-speed camera can capture the path of the bullet. It struck Kennedy in the neck, streaking through to Conley, then clearly exited and moved through the wrist block. Leaving the wrist, it only had enough energy to bounce on the thigh block and tumble off into the brush. Amazingly, Alex has replicated the magic bullet shot. All right, way to go, Alex. That's impressive. But you know, I think I have have one small question. Remember when the uh, narrator said, 
It struck Kennedy in the neck. It struck Kennedy in the neck. Did you notice how that red line depicting the trajectory of the bullet just flashes across the screen for a fraction of a second? Let's stop the action and take a little closer look at the path of their bullet. Now remember, this was the culmination of numerous previous attempts by these guys that failed to reproduce their version of the single bullet theory. The red line, by the way, is not mine. It's part of the video. Okay, now I'm not a doctor, folks, and I never took a course in anatomy, but you tell me, did this bullet, even by the wildest stretch of imagination, really enter at the neck? And are we supposed to believe that this is the base of the throat? Or that this is where Governor Connolly's armpit was located? So this simulation was just like the rest of this propaganda piece that appeared on the Discovery Channel. Well, once again, I think that's an excellently done bit of debunking. It takes a very specific claim. It looks at the, uh, the what's actually being presented. It shows the contradictions that are inherent therein and exposes it for, well, a piece of uh, sleight of hand or trickery that the, uh, the producers of the program hoped you wouldn't notice. And it's uh, pointed out in an excellent and straightforward manner, and I think it makes the point very well. So I think that's a good example of debunking. It's uh, simple and it seems effortless when it's done so well, but there are, well, more ham-fisted examples of debunking that uh, that muddy the waters and cloud the picture. Well, let's take another look at a different example, uh, but one that I think is equally effective, extremely effective at, at taking a look at specific claims, measuring them based on the avail available evidence, and finding them distinctly lacking. I'm speaking of an excellent new documentary that I hope everyone will check out if they haven't yet done so. It's called Ancient Aliens Debunked, talking about the History Channel's Ancient Aliens series, proposing that ancient astronauts came and made all of the structures in, in ancient the ancient world, etc., etc., and the evidence that's presented for that. And, uh, well, anyone who watches Ancient Aliens Debunked will have a very different view of the evidence that's being presented in that series than they probably did going in if they were a little less skeptical on the subject. So, absolutely, I think it's an excellent documentary precisely because of the level of detail that it goes into and the very straightforward way that it, it takes the claims, examines the content of the claims, shows that the evidence uh, usually says the exact opposite of what's being claimed, and uh, and it leaves it for itself to, to basically for the viewer to understand how it's been exposed. Let's take a look at a representative example of this, uh, this documentary talking about the structures at Baalbek. Eastern Lebanon, the Bekaa Valley. Here, at this archaeological site, stand the ruins of Heliopolis, built in the 4th century BC by Alexander the Great to honor Zeus. But beneath the Corinthian columns and remnants of both Greek and Roman architecture lie the ruins of a site that is much, much older. According to archaeologists, it dates back nearly 9,000 years. The ancient city of Baalbek, named after the early Canaanite deity, Baal. And so because it was already sacred to the god Baal, then later the Greeks and the Romans then would build temples on this very same spot. Archaeological surveys have revealed that the enormous stone foundation 
that lies at the base of the site dates back tens of thousands of years. But even more significant to ancient astronaut theorists is their belief that the colossal stone platform may once have served as a landing pad for space travelers. The idea that ancient aliens will try to convey is that underneath the Roman ruins lies a very old platform that was once used to launch spacecraft. As we watch the next clip, listen for the first thing they cite as evidence for this claim. But what was originally there before the Roman temple was this spaceport platform that was apparently used for extraterrestrials coming and going on planet Earth. As evidence, researchers point to the gigantic megalithic stones incorporated into the foundation, each weighing between 800 to 1,200 tons and perfectly fitted together. These three stones they're referring to are called the trilithons, and the heaviest of the three is 800 tons, not 1,200 tons as they say. There are two other stones that are heavier than this around the area, but they are unused, still connected to the bedrock in the quarries, and thus are obviously not part of the trilithons. The way the information is presented about these three stones leads the viewer to believe that they are part of the foundation, or platform, of the bailback site. What they want the viewer to think is that spacecraft lifted off and landed on the stones of this platform. They also claim that these three stones cannot be of Roman construction, as the mainstream archaeologists believe but they say that they were part of the earliest structure at the Baalbek site, and that the Greeks and Romans only built on top of this ancient foundation. And it is true that there was a very old pre-Roman temple at this site, but we will learn more about that later. Our focus at the moment is the Trilithon stones. Ancient Alien says that these three stones are the real mystery of Baalbek. This is the real mystery of Baalbek. How these stones came to be there, why they were placed there, and specifically how they were transported into place. Because some of the stones are of such magnitude that modern machinery is incapable of putting them there. But somehow our ancestors were able to do this. To solve this mystery, we need to first understand that these three stones do not form the foundation of Baalbek, as is so often suggested. The Trilithon stones lay end-to-end, -end, or long ways, and are part of the narrow wall on the western end of the complex. They are most certainly not the foundation, nor do they constitute a platform, and it would be very awkward for a spaceship to land on top of them considering the space on top is so narrow. Ancient Aliens tries to make it seem like no one knows the purpose for these stones, or why they had to be so heavy. But if the moving, hoisting, and setting of such massive stones was so incredibly difficult, then who, or what, placed them there? And perhaps more importantly, why? The truth is that the purpose for this wall is very well known by archaeologists. It was a retaining wall. Retaining wall technology really improved with the Greeks because of the importance of the amphitheater in their culture. Because most amphitheaters were sunken into the ground and surrounded by earth, they needed to construct retaining walls to hold back the soil. Then the Romans came along and basically perfected the practice. The rule of thumb in retaining walls, even today, is the bigger and heavier the stones, the better the retaining wall. Also, the stones needed to be in as big of sections as possible. In other words, huge sections of uncut stone. 
It's no coincidence that some of the biggest single stones in the ancient world, besides Baalbek, are also used in retaining walls and by the Romans as well, as we will see. Retaining walls were especially important if there was a lot of soil erosion at the site or if the platform you were trying to build was on a steep incline. At Baalbek, the platform was built right on the side of a huge hill, so for that reason alone, it would require a retaining wall if they intended to make a large level platform. But if you added to that a soil erosion problem, you would have two very good reasons for a huge retaining wall at Baalbek. So does the area around Baalbek have a problem with soil erosion? The answer is yes, probably one of the biggest in the world. You can see evidence of soil erosion all around the Baalbek site. The soil from the top of the hill has been sliding down the hill into the valley below for hundreds of years. One of the leading causes of soil erosion is deforestation. If an area that once had trees has been completely cleared of those trees, the rain no longer will have anything to slow down its velocity. Normally, the rain hits tree branches and the thick foliage that accumulates on the forest floor over time. Also, the soil is kept in check by the root systems of the trees, which hold the soil in place. Lebanon has a picture of a cedar tree on its flag. Their trees have been a symbol of pride for literally millennia, the so-called cedars of Lebanon. But the forests have disappeared long ago, as they were one of the only sites for timber in the ancient Near East, and it was massively deforested in ancient times. In fact, the soil shifting is just as bad today in the Bekaa Valley. The UN in 2006 proposed a series of solutions to deal with this now full-scale environmental disaster in the Baalbek region. Homes in the region are being abandoned as their foundations shift and they become inhabitable. But although these proposed solutions by the UN may be new, this problem is an ancient one, one the Romans would have been well aware of. The massive Trilithon stones provided the weight needed to press down and secure the stones in the wall below. This is why you only see these huge stones on one side of Baalbek, the side where the steep slope is. The idea that these stones were part of a platform and were used as a landing pad is something that requires ignorance of the layout of the site in order to believe. Well, what about the age of this wall? Is it from the Roman period of construction, or is it from the pre-Roman Canaanite era? There is a lot of confusion about this point because there was indeed a very old pre-Roman temple on this site. The pre-Roman Canaanite temple was a pretty standard platform and altar, much like other sites built by the Canaanites, which were referred to in the Old Testament as high places. The original site was probably chosen by the Canaanites because it was indeed on a hill, as any good high place should be, but also because it was less than half a mile from the perfect stone quarry. The early versions of this temple, however, did not have a retaining wall. As the different groups added to the site over the years, the site changed drastically. The Romans alone spent 200 years doing construction at the site. Think of that. That would be like starting a construction project in 1812 that only just now came to completion. That's a long time to be working on a project. So yes, Baalbek is built on a very old Canaanite altar to Baal, but the Trilithon stones were not part of that site, nor are they part of the foundation as is often claimed. They are part of a very necessary retaining wall. Once again, that's Chris White's new documentary, Ancient Aliens Debunked, at ancientaliensdebunked.com. It's a very lengthy, very detailed documentary. That's just one exam example of one of the sections there where they talk about many of the other pieces of evidence that are usually presented as evidence of ancient aliens. And uh, I think it's a very straightforward 
excellently presented documentary with lots of evidence and documentation to back it up. Again, all of the documentation, the transcript, everything available there for free at ancientaliensdebunked.com. So I hope you'll check that out. And it goes to show that sometimes I think the people propounding the quote-unquote conspiracy theories are the ones that are doing the best debunkings. Other times it's the people promoting the, the quote-unquote conspiracy theories who need to be debunked. Again, each and every claim has to be taken on its own merits, and I don't think we can go into it with a preconceived notion of who is going to be right or who is going to be wrong in this or that case, because that's how we start to basically build a worldview which is increasingly difficult to destruct once it's been erected. If we tend to think, well, we I know this source or this person often tells me the truth, therefore I should believe what he says, or I know this organization or or the mention of this name usually means something bad, so I'll, I'll believe that this, this person is, is really connected to this bad thing this person is talking about. Again, this can take a lot of different forms, so let's take a look at a specific example, again, to show that I am absolutely for debunking, whether it's on the side of going in favor of the conspiracy theories or against the conspiracy theories, of course in air quotes because that's such a loaded term anyway. But let's take a look at a conspiracy theory that has made the rounds to the point where there are a lot of people who will cite it or will in some way kind of bring it up in a vague concept as a vague concept but uh, there's a lot to be said about it that needs to be looked into and I think it's easily enough debunked from from my perspective. So let's take a look at that. It's called the Aquarian Conspiracy, and for those of you who haven't heard of it yet, it's probably most notable in uh, in the work of John Coleman, who wrote about the, uh, the hierarchy, the conspirators' hierarchy, the Committee of 300, which is a work about this so-called Committee of 300 that is one of these organizations which puppeteers a lot of other organizations which are commonly seen to be part of the conspiracy and and thus is something that we have to be aware of and 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 wary of its influence over world events, etc. I won't try to summarize the whole book in a few sentences, so I will suggest you go and read it online. It is available online. I'll put the link in the show notes for today's episode. But let's look at specifically one particular part of this that I find, well, interesting and uh, certainly piqued my uh, interest and my attention when I first came across it. So I'm reading again from The Conspirators' Hierarchy, The Committee of 300 by John Coleman, quote, An outstanding example of social conditioning to accept change, even when it is recognized as unwelcome change by the large population group in the sites of Stanford Research Institute, was the advent of the Beatles. The Beatles were brought to the United States as part of a social experiment which would subject large population groups to brainwashing, of which they were not even aware. When Tavistock brought the Beatles to the United States, nobody could have imagined the cultural disaster that was to follow in their wake. The Beatles were an integral part of the Aquarian Conspiracy, a living organism which sprang from the changing images of man, from the policy research paper report of the uh, SRI Center for the Study of the Social Policy Director, Professor Willis Harmon. The phenomenon of the Beatles was not a spontaneous rebellion by youth against the old social system. Instead, it was a carefully crafted plot to introduce, by a conspiratorial body which could not be identified, a highly destructive and divisive element into a large population group targeted for change against its will. New words and new phrases prepared by Tavistock were introduced to America along with the Beatles. Words such as rock in relation to music sounds, teenager, cool, 
discovered, and pop music were a lexicon of disguised code words signifying the acceptance of drugs and arrived with and accompanied the Beatles wherever they went to be discovered by teenagers. Incidentally, the word teenagers was never used until just before the Beatles arrived on the scene, courtesy of the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. Following the Beatles, who incidentally were put together by the Tavistock Institute, came other made-in-England rock groups who, like the Beatles, had Theo Adorno write their cult lyrics and compose all the music. I hate to use these beautiful words in the context of Beatlemania. It reminds me of how wrongly the word lover is used when referring to the filthy interaction between two homosexuals writhing in pig's will. To call rock music is an insult. Likewise, the language used in rock lyrics. End quote. Well, there's a number of pieces to be teased out there from that interesting section of this book that a lot of people will talk about, but I think very few have probably actually read. So, of course, myself as a voluntarist, I could not care less what two consenting adults do behind closed doors with or to each other. But uh, the fact that he talks about has to bring in the homosexuals writhing in pig's will as part of this argument against the Beatles is head-scratching and can only bring to mind, well, a uh, well an old fuddy-duddy who doesn't like Beatles music and is taking it out on, on in the best way possible by making them part of a grand Aquarian conspiracy. But that's me reading into what's going on here. Let's actually read what is being claimed and the evidence or lack thereof for what is being claimed. Here we have a uh, several paragraphs from this larger book and the actual citations or notations for the documentation that underlies any of this research is exactly zero, nil, there is nothing. So we're not going to be able to find any of the sources for any of this information we are being told in this document anywhere from the document, which should be at least one red flag when someone comes along and proposes some very specific things, like the, the word teenager was invented by the Tavistock Institute and the Stanford Research Institute and inserted into pop culture just in time for the Beatles to arrive on the scene. That's a very specific piece of uh, information, and for there to be no source on this, we are basically being asked to take this author's word at face value. And I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anyone on the planet whose word I would simply take at face value about a very specific claim like that. So so myself, I'm always uh, looking for red flags like that, where there's no documentation or evidence provided for a certain claim, especially a claim that's as sweeping and as specific and as detailed as that. There should be something. There is something in the way of a citation, I suppose, here. We have this document called the Changing Images of Man. There's a URH policy research report code that there that you can use to actually look up and, and find this document online, which I did take the time to do at one point because I thought that this was a fascinating idea and I wanted to read more about it and what might underlie this. So I did download this and read this at one point, but I can assure you it says nothing about the Beatles or pop music or anything in particular about that. Again, don't take my word for it. Please go and look at the document for yourself. But I think that this is uh, uh, not a red herring per se, but something that he is tying into part of this so-called Aquarian conspiracy. Again, even where this name, the Aquarian conspiracy, comes from other than from the mind of John Coleman is not exactly apparent. But there are other specific claims that are made here, including those that revolve around this Theodore Adorno character and 
He, he may be familiar to some people out there. For those who aren't, I'll put in a link just to the basic bare-bones Wikipedia entry. He's a German sociologist, philosopher, musicologist, known for his critical theory of society. He was part of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, uh, looking at, uh, connected with people like Ernst Bloch, Walter Benjamin, Max Horkheimer, Herbert Marcuse. They were looking at uh, Freud, Marx, Hegel, etc. for their critique of modern society and pop culture, etc. Uh, a fascinating character, an interesting and important person in the history of philosophy. I hope you will look into him and uh, and feel free to engage either critically or positively or however you will with his work. But here we have Theodore Adorno, part of this Frankfurt School, this philosopher and musicologist, being cited as the person who actually wrote the lyrics and composed the music, not only for the Beatles, but for other groups that were being inserted into pop culture by the Tavistock Institute at the time. Again, an oddly very specific charge, and uh, it's been elaborated on by at least one other researcher that I know of, and that is Alan Watt of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, who has talked about this from time to time. Uh, I'll take a representative example from a conversation he had with Visigoth on the Grassy Knoll back on May 25th, 2006. The transcript of this is available on CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Of course, I'll put the link to the transcript right there in the show notes for today's episode. You can also download the audio of this conversation from CuttingThroughTheMatrix if you so desire. Visigoth says, with regard to, I guess, one of the most popular groups ever in regard to rock and roll, you look at the Beatles. Now, you're not the only individual. In fact, you're the only other one that I know of, and there may be more, who have identified a certain individual as being responsible for their meteoric rise, and also probably involved with one of the more, more notorious think tanks in the world, which I guess is Tavistock. And Alan Watt responds, Tavistock and the Frankfurt Institute. The Frankfurt Institute is where Theodore Adorno, who is a master at music, he understood the complete science and psychology of music. He taught courses there. Frank Zappa took a course from him, and everybody who took the course came out as a superstar, heavily financed, heavily backed, singing a particular type of music, which really did affect teenagers at the time. Again, this was one of the strategies they used. Theodore Adorno owned the musical rights to the Beatles up until he died. When did he pass? Do you know? I can't remember exactly. I think it was the late 80s or maybe probably the late 80s because Paul McCartney put in a bid. At the same time, so did Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson won. He presently owns the rights of the Beatles. In fact, recently in some newspapers, because of some of the troubles he was in legally, he was talking about selling them and putting them back up for sale. Okay, we'll leave the quote there. They go on to talk in more depth about this idea of the Aquarian conspiracy, the Beatles, John Coleman, etc., Theodore Adorno, how this all swirls around. And I'll let you continue reading through that conversation. But again, we have some more specific claims that seem to be tacked onto this. I don't believe John Coleman actually made that claim that Adorno owned the rights to the Beatles music. But uh, but this is being tacked on by Alan Watt. And again, a very specific claim that, again, we can, to some extent actually take a look at the documentary record to see what we can and cannot pin down here. So first off, we have to really distinguish between uh, the two types of ownership of music that, that you could say, say to have. So for example, there's the, the ownership of the physical recordings themselves, which are actually owned by EMI and Apple Corp jointly. They, they actually own the recordings. And then there's the owner ownership of the, the catalog, the, the songs that were the publishing rights to the songs. And that is held by a separate company. So that is at this point owned uh, by uh, Sony ATV Music Publishing, which... Uh, it was something that came together, as Alan Watt said. It was uh, Michael Jackson uh, purchased this ATV company that held the publishing rights to to uh, uh, 
the, the Beatles catalog and some other copyrighted songs for about $50 million back in the 1980s, um, based on advice that he'd been given to get into the, uh, the publishing rights business by Paul McCartney. It caused a rift between them, blah, blah, blah. I think everyone probably has heard that part of the story. But here's a specific claim by Ellen Watt that uh, Theodore Adorno, uh, he owned the rights up until he died, probably in the late 1980s, because that's when the Michael Jackson bought the catalog. Actually, it was the early 1980s. But anyway, um, well, so that's a pretty specific claim that is absolutely right off the bat, incorrect. Uh, Theodore Adorno did not die in the late 1980s, the mid-1980s, the early 1980s, or anywhere near the 1980s. He, in fact, died in 1969, before the Beatles even officially broke up. So that puts a little bit of a dent in that idea that was being propounded by Alan Watt. Perhaps he was just a little bit off on his dates. Maybe Adorno owned the rights until his death in 1969. But I will uh, put in a link to the song catalog uh, entry uh, on the Wikipedia Beatles entry, so that you you can go and take a look at the uh, the ownership and how it came together. Northern Songs Limited, uh, the joint partnership with Dick James, uh, with Lennon and McCartney, and his partner Emmanuel Silver. How Epstein, uh, Brian Epstein, was uh, was was cut into there. The percentages that they owned of shares, how those shares changed over time. Again. I, I never would suggest that Wikipedia be taken as a bastion of truth. It's only a bastion of truthiness. But again, there are literally dozens of citations in here to to various books and, and documentation that one can go back to if one is so inclined to take a look at the various sources from which this information is gleaned, who owned what rights, when and where. And oddly enough, absolutely no mention whatsoever of Theodore Adorno, who again died in 1969, so could not possibly have owned the rights up until the 1980s, as was claimed by Ellen Watt. So there are Right off the bat, there are a number of problems with this theory, and uh, and again, I will let you look into it uh, further in your own time, uh, but at this point, I would say it, it's pretty the uh, thoroughly debunked. So far, we have exactly zero in terms of evidence that the, the, the Tavistock Institute was uh, hiring Adorno to write the songs for the Beatles or anything along those, those lines. There's absolutely zero evidence for that, and some of the specific claims are demonstrably wrong, like Adorno owning the catalog to the Beatles. Uh, there's more to be said on here, but I won't spend so much time on it. Uh, suffice it to say, I think that this is, uh, well, uh, uh, completely wrong. I think it's just totally off base. However, I, having said that, I do think there definitely is something to the media manipulation and the, 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 the business side of things that went on into manipulating the Beatles into becoming the Beatlemania phenomenon of 1963. And anyone who looks at how Love Me Do, for example, first charted, after supposedly tens of thousands or however many copies uh, were were sold via Epstein's own, uh, and whether he bought those copies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and how that manipulated the charts and the the Beatlemania press that that preceded the Beatles trip to the U.S., etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think it there was a coordinated business strategy to to make the Beatlemania mania phenomenon happen, and I do think that uh, that we could look into why that was promoted so heavily and and who some of those figures were, but. Again, that Theodore Adorno wrote all of the music of the Beatles, I think is, well, pretty ludicrous and not backed up by any documentary evidence 
whatsoever. But having said that, I am 100% open to be proven wrong on this point. So if anyone has any documentary evidence that they would like to put forward on this and, and any of the connections, for example, between Theodore Adorno and George Martin and how they secretly linked up behind the scenes, anything that you have to actually prove any of these claims, I would be absolutely fan- fanatical. I'd be absolutely awesome if someone could prove some of that to me because it would be just so mind-blowing. But I see nothing for it at this point. So once again, you can contact me through CorbettReport.com if you have anything on that. But uh, but I, again, I have to evaluate each claim on its own merits and demerits. And on this one, I'd have to say, well, there's there seem to be no merits and an awful lot of demerits on this side of the argument. But this brings us to an important point about debunking. I don't want to just leave it on a note of debunking because I think that there's a, an extra note of caution that we need to take here, which is to say that we don't necessarily need to go from the debunking of a specific claim by a specific researcher or anyone out there from that to suddenly throwing away everything that person talks about or, or suddenly saying that person is controlled opposition or a shill working for blah, 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 or whatever type of uh, argument that people often come out with when they see that someone is wrong about something. They like to try to uh, basically throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that person is completely wrong. In fact, there I think there are a number of different ways that we can take this. And, uh, and this was a note of caution that was put into my recent conversation with Chris White of Ancient Aliens Debunked when we talked about debunking and some of the caution that people need to use when doing a debunking. Well, let's talk about the 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 concept, the art, the 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 process of debunking. Um, it, this is something that that obviously you've been involved in for years now. You've created quite a few documentaries now that have gone through this process. Tell us, in your own words, what is what what is the value of this? What 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 are you attempting to achieve through this, these debunkumentaries? Um, I I think it's it's obviously the, the the truth. Most of the time, when I go into a certain claim, I'm not sure what what the truth is yet. I mean, there there are very specific, difficult claims. That's how all this stuff works. It's real. It blinds you with science. You don't know the answer to that. You don't know what the drama to cluster does and blah blah blah. You know, or whatever. So, the process is kind of a fun one because in the way that I think of it is, you just learn. You just learn and learn about learn about that issue like nobody's business. And and at the end of the, you're not really even thinking about the claim at that point, but more often times than not, once you come out of like really understanding a, a, a subject, the thing that somebody said about it is obviously you know why it's obviously wrong. But uh, but but it's really important. In fact, it's like really a a, a part of our history is debunking and refutations of, of false things. There's always been this kind of things, and some of the earliest writing writings that we have are people. Uh, that we're debunking uh, just wrong theories and things like that. So it's something that uh, has a has a, a rich history. But and and I think what I learned early on with it is that it, I would get kind of frustrated with people like Jordan Maxwell and, and stuff like that. And I had a lot of spite in my voice and in what I wanted to do there. And I think over the years I just. I just had more compassion on people as I saw more of the stuff because I saw how easy it was to fall for. And so if anybody – if I would say to anything, the, anybody about debunking, the most important thing is not so much what you do, but it's the, it's the desire to help the people, the compassion for them, and just take all the, the cheap shots out of, out of your script. 
Exactly right. I, I think you're not going to win an argument by going down to the lowest common denominator. So that is something that I hope uh, pe- people out there will take to heart. And, uh, and you've got to rise above, I think, the, the mud that people sling in these debates and stick to what, what the facts are. All right, uh, time flies. We're already up against our final break. So let's take one more break and we'll uh, come back after this to wrap things up. Once again, talking tonight to Chris White of AncientAliensDebunked.com. And he has a lot of other work that we'll tell you about after the break. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. Well, once again, I hope people can appreciate the importance of that point and the importance of doing this debunking in a spirit of truly just trying to come to the truth about facts and not necessarily with accusatory fingers pointed at the people who are bringing the information. There are many different reasons why someone might be bringing faulty information. Perhaps they are misinformed themselves. Perhaps they just have some of their facts wrong. Perhaps they, they have uh, heard something wrong and are just repeating it. Perhaps they, they are the recipients of misinformation and unfortunately are running with it. Perhaps they have invested themselves in a particular theory and thus are now start, starting to twist facts to try to make it fit their theory. Uh, perhaps they are genuinely working for some conspiracy body, etc. But we don't have to take it there necessarily. Once again, the part point of debunking is to point out when and where people are going wrong on specific points of fact and trying to correct the public record so that people can actually see where they are being deceived. And again, this doesn't have to be done with an accusatory finger or in a spirit of hatred. And that's at least one of the things that I give uh, James Randi credit for. He didn't really, when he was attacking some of the crystal healers and uh, dowsers and some of the, the flimflam charlatans that he was attacking in his time as, uh, as a master debunker, he didn't generally do so in a spirit of hatred for the people involved outright so it, it certainly seems that way when it comes to the conspiracy theories and he talks about the uh, the stupid conspiracy theorists with their uh, theories of George Bush at the base of the World Trade Center with a hacksaw etc but uh, but when it comes to a lot of that he didn't do so with a hatred in his heart and uh, and I think that's an important point of this puzzle if only because it is actually an exposed FBI tactic to go around pointing fingers at people and proclaiming them to be uh, shills or members of this or that organization, etc., is a on-the-record documented FBI tactic to try to divide and disunite organizations of people who would otherwise have an effect on the society. And we can document that with a, uh, a an entry on a very fascinating website that I just discovered today. I haven't really looked through it, so uh, I will continue to do so. I hope you will too. It's called the Snitching Blog at snitching.org. It's a comprehensive resource on criminal informants, legal developments, legislation, news stories, cultural reactions, commentary and more but on this blog they had a post on march 29 2010 called snitch jacketing it says quote in response to a freedom of information act request the fbi has just released for the first time hundreds of memos regarding its special file room in which it has stored for decades information considered too sensitive for its central filing system As described by the Boston Globe, the special filing system is designed to restrict access to information severely and, in more sinister instances, some experts assert, prevent the Congress and the public from getting their hands on it. The information includes such things as plans to relocate Congress if Washington is attacked, files on high-profile mob figures and their political friends, as well as the FBI's own questionable activities such as spying on domestic political organizations. From the Globe. 
Other files on domestic spying that were routed to the special file room involved black nationalist extremists. There were also files about an extremely sensitive counterintelligence technique called snitch jacketing, which apparently involved the FBI spreading false information that members of a targeted group were government informants in order to sow conflict within their membership. It goes on from there. I'll let you go and take a look at that post and you can go and actually see the FBI documents themselves. They're linked up there on the uh, in the comment section of that post. You can also take a, take a look at the Boston Globe article that's talking about this technique. But once again, it is an exposed and admitted FBI technique to go around pointing the finger at people, calling them uh, agents and shills and, and uh, disinformants, etc., etc., I think we are truly best served by taking a look dispassionately as possible at this information and simply evaluating claims on their merits. And no one is an angel, least of all me. We all have our own biases and, and we all have our own inability to some extent to disassociate ourselves and our emotions from this, but to the extent that it's possible, I I certainly hope we will try to do that instead of immediately pointing fingers at anyone who we suspect of being uh, slightly outside of the orthodoxy of whatever community we're in. And one example of that that I will point people to is uh, I don't generally check the YouTube comments of uh, my videos because I don't find them particularly intellectually engaging, but I did notice there was a very interesting exchange on my conversation with Mark Abella in which uh, one of the people started immediately into, this man is a shill, he's an agent, uh, he's a government propagandist, etc., etc. And uh, Mark Abella actually took the time to respond to this person, and they ended up having a very very interesting and very natural human interaction. Uh, so th- th- it does go to show that there I- often are actual human beings on the other end of this dialogue. So I hope people will will keep that in mind when they uh, start ranting about in all caps about how this or that person is a propagandist and a shill, etc., etc. Sometimes people are just wrong. And if we go about debunking in a absolutely factual and document-oriented manner, the ways in which people are wrong, hopefully they will not take it too personally if they are called out on it, and perhaps they might even see the light of reason themselves. But on that note, that's all we have time for today. This is the Corbett Report, and once again, CorbettReport.com is brought to you by you, so I do appreciate your support. Once again, we are accepting Bitcoin payments for subscriber memberships and also for my latest Last Word DVD. I have received another subscriber payment from a Bitcoin uh, user, but I have absolutely no idea who you are. So if you want to email me with your Bitcoin transaction ID so that I know uh, who you are and uh, where to send the subscriber email, I'll be happy to send it to you. On that note, uh, I'm your host, James Corbett. Once again, looking forward to talking to you again next week. It's time to panic to react, to stop this war. Humanity is rising and the truth is coming forth.